The other night, when uh, on Thursday and Friday night, Linda and I were at the cabin in West Virginia, I was supposed to finish off the year and I was using it as a retreat time, was going to use it as a retreat time to finish off all of the rest of the sermon topics for the rest of the year. That, that didn't happen. But I did get to see the sky. I did get to see the sky. And I'm not talking about the light polluted sky of Northern Virginia. I, not that it's not a beautiful sky. Don't get me wrong. I love the sky. Wherever it is, it is totally cool because as we learned earlier, surely God is in whatever place you are and I never knew it. But we were sitting on the front porch and we were just watching it. Uh, you know, it was, I had cut the grass um, with the uh, supposedly self-propelled lawnmower, which no longer self-propels. It James propels or Linda propels, whoever pushes it. So it was the James propulsion system. And we have a hilly front yard. So we were sitting there just kind of collecting ourselves, drinking water and uh, watching the sun go down and the sun began to disappear, and then it got darker, and then it got darker, and then it was dark. And I'm talking dark. And when I say dark, I mean dark. We had seen just the first planet appear. I don't know which planet it was, but the first planet appear, and then all the stars. And suddenly Linda said, we have to go on the back deck. Because the, we were sitting on the front porch, and, and we were partially covered over. We have to go on the back deck because I think that's the Milky Way. And so we went out on the back deck and sure enough, it was the Milky Way. And we knew surely God was in that place. And in that moment, any distance between me and God, which is usually of my own creating, was gone. And in that moment, I was there with God. And that distance broke down. Now, um, we're going to be doing a series now based on this book by uh, Richard's most recent book, Richard Rohr, The Universal Christ. And in a way, it's meant to be a teaser, an enticer. As I talk a little bit about what these books are about, we're uh, in the middle of October going to start a purely online Zoom-only class. So if you're watching online, from wherever you are, and you want to sign up to be in our Zoom class, limit of 12 slots, and since I advertised it last week, five slots have already filled. So uh, there are seven slots left. Um, but uh, no matter where you are, we'll meet probably once, maybe twice a month uh, for an hour. The first one is, I found out the first session is an hour and a half, but then, uh, that's sort of the introductory session. Every other session is an hour long. There are eight sessions altogether, and we're going to work through Richard's book. Uh, accompanying that book, we have this book. I have ordered those books so that there will be enough to go around. They're not available on Amazon. They're only available from the Center for Action and Contemplation website. So they're on their way, and we'll have those as well. So I just wanted you to know that piece. Now let me read to you uh, today's... Uh, scripture passage, and for some reason I flipped over to Romans, which is not today's scripture passage. We are looking at Genesis 28. Um, now, intriguingly enough, the last time I used this Bible here at St. James, it was because I forgot to bring my newer, lighter, common English Bible. Uh, and so I took this Bible home with me, and uh, I've been using it because 
this turns out to be, as I looked at it and realized, this is the first Bible I ever bought for myself. Uh, every other Bible I got when I went into third grade, the church gave me a Bible. When I went into sixth grade, the church gave me a Bible, so I would do confirmation, a different Bible. My parents, when I was confirmed as a member of the church, gave me a Bible. And so I have a series of Bibles given to me over the years by other people, which is totally cool. But when I was away at college and, and I was an, uh, first an assistant and then an associate pastor under appointment in Charlottesville while I was at UVA, uh, I bought this, this Bible for me. Because I thought, you know, if it was heavier and bigger, it probably was more jam-packed with God. You know, uh, that's, uh, you know, when you're in your early 20s, maybe reasoning is uh, questionable. Uh, and uh, so I bought it because it was the biggest Bible they had at the Christian bookstore. <laughs> and now I have it. But I have enjoyed reading it over the years. And it's actually Richard's favorite Bible to read from. This is what he does his daily uh, reading from, and this is what uh, James Finley, one of the other teachers in the living school, does his from, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to copy them. If it was for them, I'll try it out, go back to reading the Jerusalem Bible. So, with all that preface, we are in Genesis chapter 28. You might say, James said he's going to talk about the universal Christ. How is he beginning in Genesis 28? Give me a second, I'm going to read you the passage, we'll get there. Ride with me on this. You can trust me. Uh, chapter 28, and I'm beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he had reached a certain place, he passed the night there since the sun had set. Taking one of the stones to be found at the place, he made it his pillow and lay down where he was. He had a dream. A ladder was there, standing on the ground with its top reaching to heaven, and there were angels of God going up and coming down. And Adonai was there, standing over him, saying, I am Adonai, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants shall be like the specks of dust on the ground. You will spread to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all the tribes of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Be sure that I am with you. I will keep you safe wherever you go and bring you back to this land, for I will not desert you before I have done all that I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Truly, Adonai is in this place, and I never knew it. He was afraid and said, How awe-inspiring this place is. There is. This is nothing less than the house of God, and it is also the gate of heaven. Rising early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he had used for a pillow and set it up as a monument, pouring oil over the top of it. He named the place Bethel. And Bethel in Hebrew just means house of God, because surely this is the house of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I brought some, uh, I brought some, uh, visual aids, because, you know, we are a multimedia church. 
used to use video clips, and I thought you would want to see some rocks, just in case you had never seen a rock in your life and needed to know. This is a small rock. This is a slightly larger rock. If I were looking for a pillow, I would choose something bigger that currently I could not carry. So uh, I decided I could not find a stone big enough to be my pillow, so we had to use these smaller and yet more portable uh, images of rocks. Uh, and these are, uh, you know, little hefty rocks. I don't know if you've ever been camping and ended up with your head on a rock, usually quite by accident. I know people, when I was a Boy Scout, we, uh, we were roughing it, but we always had pillows. You know, Jacob was what we really call, you know, he was out back camping. I mean, here it was. It doesn't say he even had a blanket or a sleeping bag or a tent. He found a rock, laid it down, and that was where he slept that night. And he had that dream about the ladder of God where angels go up and come down. And then he awoke to realize God was in that place. And he just didn't recognize it. And so what he did is what was common uh, and is common even today in Israel. There are a lot of rocks. There aren't a lot of plants in Israel, but there's a lot of rocks. You see rocks everywhere of all sizes and shapes. So oftentimes, you know, you put a rock somewhere to mark it, to show what it is. Well, he takes the pillow rock that he was on, that he laid down on, and he set it down. Now, he set it on the ground, and he set it up. Now, I found that this one barely balances sitting up, so we're not going to try setting it up. And then he did something. He took oil that he had with him, probably olive oil. That was common, like I have in this cup. And he anointed the rock. And that, that place became holy. Now, what's interesting about anoint anointing a rock with olive oil is it'll soak, up the, it'll soak up all the oil. And we can think now of this rock as something holy because it's been anointed. It has been anointed. The word in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that we get the word Messiah from really just means an anointed one. And in the early Old Testament, before they came to expect a Messiah who would save them, uh, which we came to, uh, we Christians would call Jesus, uh, would understand to be Jesus. Anybody who was anointed was a Messiah. I, I mean, if you got some oil put on your head, so kings were Messiahs, uh, prophets were sometimes Messiahs, priests were always Messiahs. People who got their heads, Meshiach is the word in Hebrew, Meshiach. Now, in Greek, the word is one that you may have heard before, Christ. Christ. And so by anointing this rock, uh, and by anointing the original rock that Jacob did in the middle of uh, the desert, we must imagine, uh, or certainly uh, in a rocky place, anointing this one rock, he recognized God's presence in that place. But he wasn't just saying in that one place. The anointing of God is every place, and God's presence is in every place. God is made manifest all places, all the time. There is no place you can go. One of the wonderful things that we have lost, in, uh, particularly in the Protestant church, uh, and they still do it in the Catholic church, but 
uh, they do it especially in the Orthodox Church in the East. And that is, in addition to baptizing you with water, they put chrism on your head, oil, to remind you that you are anointed, that you are anointed, that God has called you, that at your baptism, you got the calling on you that belongs to every human being. Yeah, the bishop laid hands on me and said, take thou authority to do something. But somebody, if you've been baptized, laid hands on you, on your head, or dropped you down in the water, depending upon where you were baptized, and in so doing, said you were ordained to do God's work for the rest of your lives, and that God was in you. There was no place you could go where there wasn't God. There was no space you couldn't go to. God wasn't. And since you didn't have to carry God along like a portable kind of, you know, like if I needed to carry this rock around with me as a portable sign, God is in this place. Oh, now God is over here in this place. Oh, let's see where God could go now. God is wherever. Now, every once in a while, if you read the Old Testament carefully, the Israelites thought that God traveled, you know, with them in a tent when they were escaping Egypt. And later, they built God a temple in, in, uh, in Jerusalem and thought that God's name lived there. But the truth of the whole matter is, God is everywhere. And God chose, ride with me on this for a moment, if we want to become evolutionary scientists, and go back 14.6 billion years, give or take a billion years. I don't know when the Big Bang exactly happened. Somewhere way back then, God began to become manifest, reflected in everything that's made. You know when you look at a piece of artwork and you say to yourself, you know, if you know anything about Van Gogh and you see a live piece of, a live Van Gogh, not just a picture of a Van Gogh, but you go into a museum where you can see Vincent Van Gogh's work. You can tell by the brush strokes. You can tell by the thickness of the oil paint that he used to paint and the kind of tortured way in which he worked with the paint. You can see the handiwork of Vincent Van Gogh in everything he painted. Just like you can see the handiwork of God in everything God painted here, of which every single one of you in this space and online and watching later are some of those. Every blade of grass, every molecule, every quark, every galaxy is painted with God's hand. There is nothing you see in your everyday life where God doesn't meet you face to face face to face. Now the problem for most of us is we're just not there when we're there. Our physical body is there but I'm already at work with my list of things I've got to get done when I get there. Or I realize that I didn't kiss my wife goodbye before I left the house and I regret that. Or maybe we parted. We don't usually part on unhappy words. We haven't in a long long time. I'm trying to remember. I'm waiting for confirmation, you know, because I could be wrong. <laughs> what? Maybe not me. 
I always experience every time Linda leaves the house as pleasant. So, uh, <laughs> Tim caught that one. Uh, every parting, we try to part in a friendly way, but the truth is we're regretting that last moment or we're already where we're going next. And we can't be in this moment. And if you're not in this moment, you can't see the reflection of God. One of the things that wanna, when I went on retreat with, uh, back in the spring with Richard, one of the things they gave us um, to wear around our neck is a, is a mirror. It's a mirror. Now on one side of the mirror, it's plain. It's just a mirror. On the other side, it's a mirror with the eye of God. And it's looking at my heart. The eye of God sees me. And the way I see the world is as a reflection of God. I see God as the reflection. So you see what Jacob did in the very, very beginning? What Jacob did there in the, you know, already in the 28th chapter is sort of foretell that we could catch a glimpse of God wherever we were. We could catch a glimpse of God wherever we were. It's maybe not a, the best glimpse, but a partial glimpse. I mean, and if you think of God as infinite, no matter where you glimpse God, you're only glimpsing part of God at the same time. You can't see all of God. God is infinite. Infinite is bigger than your mind. And if you start thinking about it, your mind, your scientific thinking mind is going to break down. Oh, no, I can't get that big. I can get, I don't know. I can't really think of, you know, when they tell me that, you know, somebody, what is it? Jeff Bezos is the richest man in, in, in the world, and he's got a gazillion dollars. I don't know how much money. It, it doesn't make sense to me. And the reason why it doesn't make sense to me is because it's a number. I don't even have an idea. If you want to talk about a number, I understand. I've got three $5 bills in my pocket right here. You know, three $5. I can recognize 15 bucks. I know what 15 bucks looks like. You start talking even in the thousands of dollars. I can't picture that stuff. You talk about in the millions of dollars, I'll never picture that stuff. Well, when you get to the billions, I know it's a bunch of zeros, and I can write it mathematically, but I can't see it. And God's bigger than all those numbers. God isn't a number. God is just infinite. God fills everything all the time. Now, I'm not saying that everything is God, but there's no place where God already isn't and that God isn't already in it. God can be in something and still not be that thing. God is in me, and I'm not God. You all know that. We've talked about this many times. You know, I haven't had to correct any of you any time recently. <laughs> there was a, a young man who was coming to St. James for a long, for, for uh, who comes regularly, actually, a little boy, and one day they were waiting after church and he said to his dad, I'm waiting to talk to Jesus. And his dad said, you can talk to Jesus anytime you want to. No, he's talking to someone else. He's up there <laughs> pointing at me. We corrected that immediately. We corrected that immediately. Yes, God is in me. Jesus is in me. The eternal Christ is in me. However, I am not him. And I know that. But you can see a reflection of him. If I am really clear and transparent, which is why that's one of our core values, by the way, 
I'm really clear and transparent and you can get past some of the subterfuge, some of the self-deprecating humor I might use, if you can get past that, you can see Christ in me. In the same way, I can see Christ in you. When I look out every Sunday morning, see, you're stuck looking at just like one dude and maybe the back of some other people's heads. I can see all of your faces. I can't see yours online, but we're going to work this out. Someday there's going to be a way that I can project you on the back screen and I can see all of your faces. Maybe then we will have less people online. <laughs> all right, maybe we won't project you online. You can still be anonymous wherever you are. That's perfectly fine. But the truth is, I can see Christ in your faces. You are each a reflection of Christ. You realize there is no moment when you are not in this eternal presence, when you don't have the opportunity to reflect it. And the best way to do it is to learn to be in the moment you're in, not rushing ahead. The other day, I was rushing. You know, I had things, I had places to be. So my mind was ahead. And I passed this guy, I don't know, I told you this story a couple of Sundays ago, but you know, you can't hear the story every Sunday, not here every Sunday, maybe you knew, didn't hear this story, so I'll tell the story. I left early to meet my family for dinner and some good friends who were in out of town at Clyde's. It's an easy walking distance from my house. I knew I was gonna make it in time. In fact, I was gonna beat everybody else. You know, I was gonna be there waiting for them. And I passed by, I could see Clyde's, it was on the hill getting closer and closer as I walked. And there was a gentleman sitting on the, on the bus, on the, at the bus stop, waiting. And I turned and said, good evening. And he talked to me about the refugee crisis for the next 25 minutes. I was not early. I was late. And we agreed that it was a problem. But beyond that, oh, it was, it was interesting. Well, the other night, I was walking on my way to church council, but my mind was on getting to church council. And uh, we meet at City Kitchen. We're changing that, but that's a side issue. Uh, we meet at City Kitchen, so I was on my way to City Kitchen. I was even on picket, so I was getting close. And who should I see but the same man? Not near Clyde's now. <laughs> and I saw him, but I didn't see him because I was already at Clyde's thinking about what I was going to have for dinner. So I walked past him. I walked past him. And I missed an encounter with Christ because I was already at City Kitchen. I was already at City Kitchen. I wasn't on the walk. By that time, I was sweaty and gross, and uh, it was a hot evening, and uh, of course, the wait staff had to all hug me and was like, picked the wrong night to do that, buddy. <laughs> but they did. You know, I missed it because I was already somewhere else. How many things in your life do you miss because you're already somewhere else? I can still think back on moments when Hannah and Josh were little that I probably missed being in the moment with them when they asked me a question because I gave them an easy answer because I was thinking about the sermon for that Sunday because when you have small children and you're a preacher and you preach every Sunday back in those days, um, your mind is uh, occupied. 
So I wasn't always there when they asked me important questions. Why is the sky blue? Well, it's because of the refracted light that comes through the atmosphere. You know, say that to a toddler. Uh, 15-month-old, you know, Anna asked those kinds of questions when she was 15. Why is the sky blue? Why isn't it darker blue? Why couldn't it be purple? If it turns purple, Hannah, seek shelter immediately. <laughs> That's all I can say to you. Seek shelter immediately. That's usually the sign just before a tornado. It is bad. If you hear the sound of an engine and you're not near the train, run to the lowest place and hide. However, uh, why can't it be purple? I don't know about that. You'll have to ask God someday. Um, and you know, those were, who cares I missed those questions? I don't know. Maybe I really missed a moment to catch a glimpse of Christ. How many times do you not notice that surely God was in this place? Because you're too busy. Because your mind is somewhere else. The mind is a wonderful thing. And, you know, I can still remember the mind is a terrible thing and it's a terrible thing to waste. But it's a terrible thing to spend your whole life in you, too. You will never know God. You'll know about God if you spend all the time in your mind. You'll know about God. I've memorized so many facts about God. I know all about the Bible, how it was written, when it was written, probably who wrote it. I was there, you know, watching them scribe it down. You know, it was, uh, okay, maybe not. I was checking to see if you're still awake. But I know a lot about it. And because I know a lot about it, I know about a lot of the ways it points to God. But in the end, it only points to God. It isn't God. If I point when the moon is up, if I point with my finger, I'm stealing this from Rumi, by the way. Um, if I point my finger at, God, uh, at, the, at the moon, if I can point my finger at God, you know, that's pretty impressive. But if I point my finger at the moon, my finger will never be the moon. It will simply be the way that you figure out where the moon is because my finger's pointing at it. So don't ever mistake the finger pointing to the moon for the moon itself. Don't ever mistake the Bible as anything but a pointer to God. It is not God. So, back on point. Wherever you go, there God is. 